Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Peter, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show, mate. No problem at all, Owen. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to finally chat. I've seen you on Twitter, Microcap Jesus, uh, Saintly96. Is that what it is? That's right. Yeah, it's Saintly96. And, and the handle is Microcap Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'll provide links in the show notes to that. If you're looking for a bit of fun, you can follow Peter on Twitter um, talking about Microcaps, shares his, his updates from the fund as well. So plenty to, plenty to keep you amused. And mate, today we're going to talk about basically your journey to investing um, coming from a legal background. We're going to talk about some interesting stories from that, t- that part of your life, but also now. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, which you told me on the phone last week, was that basically you managed to rack up a huge, huge, um, I guess, turnover tab at Comsec, north of $40 million, while also keeping your balance below a few hundred grand, I think. So maybe you can just kind of tell us a little bit about that, that year of trading for you, where you were at, what you were doing to rack up such a huge brokerage bill, I imagine, at Comsec. Sure, and uh, and I suppose we'll start with this. You'll you'll see the the context in the, in the bigger journey. But there were a number of years uh, from the uh, around 2011 through to 2015 where I was uh, um, turning over a lot on on Comsec. Um, as you say, uh, in 2015 or so, it reached around a bit over 42 million if you you know add up all the buy and sell orders. But yes, uh, based on very little capital that I was working with, there's a couple of reasons. For that, at that stage, I was still uh, working full time, and uh, obviously, the two of those things don't um, uh, meld all that well. And, and from 2016 on, I, I became a full time investor. But the the years leading up to becoming a full time investor were essentially uh, uh, around proving to my uh, wife, who was uh, had quite reasonable concerns about the the viability of this as a full time career. Uh, that I could do it, it profitably. Uh, my particular style of investing at that stage was uh, a constrained by fairly small amount of capital, uh, so that I was really needing to get in and out of my best ideas. Uh, I wasn't really able to be all that patient and hang around and let things develop. But also, uh, my style of investing, which is, is not technical at all, it's it's uh, uh, based around predominantly at that time, uh, analysing ASX announcements and then trying to take that information, understand that information and react to it faster than other people was one where I was, uh, you know, good at it, but uh, it's not a perfect science, of course. It was one where I might get six or seven uh, out of 10 correct. And so the best way to take the luck out of the equation was to increase, I suppose, like playing blackjack at the casino if you if you somehow have an edge or counting cards just to take the luck out you you need to uh to turn over as much as you can uh and that's why i was doing that it was so it sounds uh, sounds outrageous that sort of turnover but the reality was my average order was around 10 to twelve thousand. as a, as you've mentioned i was not uh, um leaving more than a couple hundred thousand at risk overnight at any one time uh and so that's a, a sort of stage in my investing career that's changed a lot now, mm. but uh, it was the way to prove to my wife that I could uh, do this profitably 
on a consistent basis. Whereas if you sort of leave money on a more long-term basis, you're going to have more volatility in terms of your month-to-month results, uh, which didn't really suit what I was trying to achieve at the time. Mm. So I, you sent me a screenshot of your Comsec account. Sure. Um, I, I know you're pretty um, transparent with all of your investors. Yeah. And uh, $66,000 was what you spent on brokerage, uh, which is a fair water cash. Do you look back on that now and think that's a that's a lot to spend on brokerage or did it like, because you made a profit, right? It was, I guess it's all part yeah, of Yeah, sure. I mean, in that particular period, I showed you, you know, I made a profit of about $220,000, $230,000. So I didn't even think about the brokerage. From this perspective, I was really looking to, to make profits on a, you know, if not day-to-day, then a week-to-week basis um, so that uh, I only thought in terms of post brokerage profits and loss. Um, you know, these days, if I did it, I would have looked for a cheaper brokerage option uh, and there were some around then, but uh, uh, none that sort of melded with um, my other Commonwealth Bank accounts and and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, certainly these days I could have done it a lot cheaper than that and saved a bit of money. But uh, mm. in those days, it, it, it just was part of the cost of, of doing that particular style. Can, can you just correct me if I missed this? Did, were you Was this while you were working as a lawyer? Uh, it was, yeah. So... How did you fit that in the day? Because you, from my understanding, you were trading like you would react to small or micro cap news, but that was yeah. one of the strategies that you used because you understood businesses like a couple hundred businesses that you followed pretty closely and you thought you could react quicker than the market. That's right. And so the vast majority of that uh, reacting was uh, reacting at the opening and uh, of the, the day's trade. I got around it basically by doing a lot of work before uh, the market and after the market at night. Mm. Um, outside of normal working hours uh, and then during the day doing normal work but making sure that I glanced at the ASX announcements platform every, you know, 20 minutes or so, which is I'm not suggesting it's uh, ideal uh, by any means. It, it uh, you know, and things ultimately came to a head there. I had to, to, to choose one or the other, but there was a period for a while where I was able to, to do that just by uh, being younger than I am now, having more energy and, and doing my my day job, I suppose, outside normal hours. Mm. So you did this to convince your your other half that you could, you know, take this on full time. Yeah, yeah. I can we just go back and unwind this clock a little bit to how you got started, why you got started in uh, law and in particular criminal law. Like, can you take us through that part of your life? Um, and I think there's some fascinating stories here that you could you could share with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, going right back, I studied law uh, here in Queensland. I'm, I'm living in Brisbane now and I uh, did, did well at school and, and, and studied law at the University of Queensland. Um, I did economics as well at the University of Queensland and did well at uh, statistics and, and things like that. But I you know, certainly had no interest in investing in those days. My Just, just while I'm talking about uni, I mean, one of the, I suppose, an example of, of how my, my mind works is that I gravitate to things that I'm particularly interested in and I will work incredibly hard and be, you know, to the point of obsession with things that I love doing, uh, whereas I uh, find it uh, probably difficult to get into uh, things that I don't. That's not a particularly unusual uh, trait, I suppose. But, I mean, an example of that at university is that I, I had a real like of statistics and did very well at it, but then spent uh, a good couple of years instead of probably going to lectures and tutorials I should have been doing. Um, I uh, spent a couple of years trying to design the perfect system for predicting 
uh, horse race wins uh, here in <laughs> Queensland. So uh, in those days, you know, this is only early, uh, late 90s, very late 1990s, there just wasn't the access to data. And so what I was trying to do was create a regression analysis um, whereby you would put in up to, say, 20 different factors relating to a horse, you know, that's, its weight, its previous results, uh, what barrier it was in, et cetera, about 20 different factors, and using regression analysis, try to come up with a, a model that would, you know, um, pump out the odds of, of future races. In those days, the only way to access the raw data was to go to the, the university library and using microfiche, which was literally the the, the film that you could uh, that they used to save old newspapers on, trawl through those and uh, photocopy the the race results from the previous ten years, uh, and then manually enter them into my my system. So, you know, that's the type of thing that I would do instead of uh, going to lectures, but. Uh, it's it's an example, I suppose, of the fact that when I'm onto an idea or I want to research something, or you know, I'll take it to the nth degree. But in any event, I, I um, that worked okay, but it wasn't certainly enough to, uh, to to make me a great deal of money. And I finished law, got a, a job at a, a firm in Brisbane called Gilshannon and Luton, who were the largest firm that did criminal law. They did a number of different areas of law, but they uh, they were noted as being the the, the sort of go-to firm for, for criminal law. They only did private clients, not legal aid. Uh, and so they got, you know, quite high-profile clients. They also did all the work for the police union, uh, meaning that when a police officer got in trouble uh, or a police officer was under investigation, a lawyer from that firm would often be would be assigned to that officer to help them through that process. Um, and so that was particularly interesting. I um, did my second year of training in criminal law and then, uh, after I qualified as a lawyer, I did three more years working for them uh, in mm. criminal law. Uh, that, you know, included, as I say, with the police side of things, uh, being one of the more junior members of staff, I'd be the one who would be sent out uh, when there was a police shooting or a, a police car chase that ended, ended in a death, for instance. There was always a need to have a, a lawyer on the scene to make sure that the, the police officers involved had their rights protected. So... You know, that, that involved things like uh, being called at 4am on Christmas morning to, to go out to the scene of a, uh, you know, a person who had stabbed a number of people and the police had shot him. And so spending all of Christmas Day dealing with the, the officers and going through their disciplinary interviews and, and whatnot. So, I mean, and at that age, in your early 20s, that's all very exciting when you don't have kids. Mm. But that's how I found myself getting into, into criminal law. Yeah, right. Um, and dis- disciplinary law, I suppose, as well. I mean, obviously, the, the stuff with the police isn't pure criminal law. I know from a few stories that you've said you worked on some pretty high-profile cases, right, counsel assisting, and you did a lot of interview work and some of the, some of the higher-profile cases in, in Queensland in particular, which you did email me about, and they actually did. I vividly remember them making headlines down here. And, um, I mean, are there any stories that or any kind of – allegories between that time and what you do in the legal profession and what you do as an investor? Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of the journey from there, I, uh, which I'll just cover first, I went to um, the UK and, and lived in London for, mm. for three years and I did some prosecution work over there in, in London uh, and then came back to Queensland where I was counsel assisting the state coroner for, for seven years, um, uh, which was, uh, you know, by its, its nature, a, a, a position that involved uh, extremely high-profile sort of work. 
I've always sort of said that I approach uh, my investigational uh, study into a new company that I come across in the same way that I might have uh, approached a, a new case that I came uh, at as a lawyer. Um, you know, when I was working as the uh, counsel assisting for, for the state coroner, I would get a, a police brief uh, that would outline all the details of a particular death. And uh, it was my job to, to go into that into minute detail to make sure that the police had covered off everything to commence my own investigations into to areas that I thought needed to be added to, uh, either with the police help or, or on my own. And then we would, uh, in some cases, take those, or in many cases, take those cases uh, to court and, and I would present the, the, the case, the, the witnesses in front of the state coroner. Uh, and so... That's that's essentially the way I sort of uh, approach when I'm looking at a new case. It's, a, it's a, an issue of looking at uh, what, are the, what are the facts, who are the people involved, which is still a massive part of my investing approach these days, looking at the, the, the quality and the type of people who are involved in a company. And so that was uh, the, the, the biggest parallel, I suppose, with um, my work at, at the coroner. Can you lend any, I guess, even if not examples, just some techniques that you would use or strategies that you would use to, when you were interviewing people to determine if they were of good character or with, uh, if they were lying, just anything that you would kind of use, even if it's just heuristics um, that maybe investors can use if they hear from management or speak to management. Sure. I've thought about this quite a bit. I've seen recently on Twitter some people uh, who I respect the debating this issue as to whether you can really get much out of watching people or listening to people at AGMs, for instance, and or whether you should be completely focused on uh, the facts and, and what's, uh, what's written. Um, there seemed to be a, a general view that there wasn't much you could get out of them, and that may, that may be right. I, don't, I certainly, it's very hard to make a judgment on individuals solely on the basis of how they present or what they say. Uh, you definitely need to do it in combination with what they do and, and, and the, the actual facts surrounding either a, a death or a company, as it were. But um, certainly when I was, you know, I probably did over 100 different inquests in my, my seven years there and then crunching some numbers, I think I probably interviewed or examined uh, as counsel assisting maybe close to a 1,000 witnesses um, over that time. Uh, the big things that... Yeah, you would look for people that are who are obviously inconsistent or exaggerating things. That's that's one of the biggest things. People who, and this is my biggest things, wouldn't make uh, concessions um, where it was pointed out to them that they'd made a mistake or that something just couldn't have happened, uh, and they would doggedly uh, insist that they were right, uh, notwithstanding even the most uh, damning evidence in some cases. So, uh, yeah, you're looking for, and that's a sign of either dishonesty or arrogance uh, in the case of witnesses. And so they're the similar things that I'm looking for uh, when I ask questions of people at AGMs, and it's, it's one of my uh, things as an investor to, to go to as many AGMs as I can. And, yeah, you're looking for directors or CEOs who are exaggerating who or unwilling to focus on key things like uh, actual uh, numbers, as opposed to grand ideas and grand schemes and you know, metrics that aren't particularly central to the to the company, who are unwilling to engage in uh, discussion around you know actual profit, for instance, which is uh, a pretty 
key thing for, for, for me. Can you give an example of what might be a concession either, you know, um, when you were investigating people or in interviewing people or versus, say, even in investing either one, I think would just illustrate this point. Yeah. Um, you know, a big thing is, uh, you know, just to, even with people who aren't, who you aren't testing to see whether they're particularly honest or dishonest, people who aren't central to a case, an eyewitness to a traffic accident as a very basic thing, you know, there's, there's copious evidence that shows that eyewitnesses to traffic accidents or any incident are notoriously unreliable. And so you're asking, often be asking people, you know, in some cases you knew they were wrong because you had other evidence, whether it be camera evidence or a, a huge amount of other eyewitness evidence that that showed that they were wrong. And so you would you would give them the opportunity to say, well, you know, this is your evidence, this is what's in your statement, but... Uh, you know, could it have been the case that you were mistaken on this? You know, could it have been? Is there at least a possibility? So people that, that you know weren't willing to at least accept the possibility of something. I mean, if people definitely saw something, and I'm not saying people have to always be vague. You know, sometimes people have definitely seen something and they're right. But I'm talking about situations where you know they couldn't possibly have all the information they purport to have. And so if they won't acknowledge that there's a, a possibility that uh, this could have happened or that could have happened where they, you know, clearly may not have um, seen that or weren't in a position to see it or hear it uh, and they won't make that concession that there's a possibility that they're wrong, you know, that, that's that's a, a red flag. It's a, a sign that the person's either arrogant or is more concerned with their reputation or how they appear or not being embarrassed rather than actually being accurate about something. Mm. Uh, and, and that's, you know, there's different motivations for, for companies and, and for CEOs, but it's, again, a case where CEOs may not want to be embarrassed, may not want to uh, concede that they made a mistake. It's, it's a very inexact science, though, because I'm the first to acknowledge that there's, you know, some of the, the best CEOs, some of the best businessmen out there are people that are very arrogant and and, uh, and may not make those concessions. So it's it's, mm. it's hardly a, uh, a a science as a as essentially an art to it, and it's only one of many factors that you throw into the mix. Mm. And that's true. Yeah, I was going to say it's that comes back to what you said about being. Uh, being prepared for the conversation and understanding the facts. I think a lot of investors do tune into AGMs or maybe even ask questions of management without actually understanding the business and the various players inside that business. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and I, I try to make it a, a big thing that I, I understand the, the business very well before going to, to uh, you know, one of my biggest frustrations is going to AGMs where you have people asking idiotic questions or, or questions that, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I have a very low tolerance, sadly, for that. I also had a very low tolerance for, and this will come up later in one of the companies we discuss. Um, you know, for bad lawyers, there's a lot of bad lawyers out there, and especially yeah. lawyers who are not good at advocacy. And I should perhaps be more uh, forgiving of that, but uh, yeah, that's something that really gets me worked up. Mm. I um I know from our recent chat that you also tend to follow other people, so not just you know, management and in discussions, but you also tend to follow people like on social media or elsewhere and you tend to kind of track them through time. Um, why is that important to you? 
you're talking in relation to, to people associated with companies or, or more with uh, or even just just you know promoters and spivs and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, that that's something that um, has been a an eye-opening thing for me. I think if we go back to a sort of transition from the the law into uh, this area or in, into to finance generally. Uh, and I'll come back shortly to, you know, back back to my um, development. But, you know, I was in, incredibly green in term, for most of my, my time as a, as a lawyer in terms of how the, the, the world of finance worked and, and whatnot. But it was a, an eye-opener as to how many people in finance, even in, uh, you know, listed companies and whatnot, uh, behaved, you know, particularly poorly. Um, the, the level of, you know, just outright fraud that there sometimes is in listed companies uh, and you see, you know, people like uh, John Hampton and others who who actively track this stuff and track individuals, are, you know, far better to to speak to about this sort of stuff than I am. And then they do it on an international basis. But certainly, it's something through social media and, and through just a, a general involvement in in a small listed companies for the last decade that I um, I keep a, a close eye on and, and make a a big thing not to to get involved with those people. In future, mm. I mean, for, for a long time in my uh, after I started my fund, uh, three hundred capital in twenty sixteen, there was a long period where I would look back at the uh, the best results that we'd had, and the top company was uh, a company called Big Unlimited, which you would be familiar mm. with. I mean, I you know, and that's embarrassing for me. I I invested in that at, at an early stage, you know, at around twenty cents, and and probably sold out around 50 cents and then did very well out of it. Um, it, it ended up going to $5 before, uh, you know, it was discovered to be just an outright fraud. And so that's the, that's the type of, um, or the, the level, I suppose, of spiviness of, of in that case, uh, whether it's been proven to be criminality yet, I'm not sure. So I should be careful. But, yeah, that's the stuff I'm on the, the outlook for. I and mean, that was an interesting case in that I think it differed from others in that there was, it made it very difficult because of the specifics around what they were doing to identify as, as something that mm. was a bit off in that case, you know, normally you're able to look at red flags where there's a, a lack of cash flow following mm. what's claimed in that case, of course, that there were mechanisms that allowed them to show the, the quarterly cash flows as being spectacular. You know, there's other examples and it's difficult because I, <laughs> I don't want to name some of the uh, the people that are, uh, involved. I also, you know, am the first to acknowledge that those people, some of those people, and it touches on what I said before, who appear to me to be promoters or spivvy or a bit dodgy in some way, are, are people that have, uh, you know, ultimately done very well. And this particular market, I think, uh, has uh, rewarded some of them. So my style of investing, which is yeah, very much focused on companies that are probably a little bit boring on management who are non-promotional and uh, on companies that, you know, are, are running businesses that are generally profitable. And so away from that world has, has not really been a, a particularly sexy and interesting area to be in uh, in, in the last few years. But, uh, yes. You've kind of touched on why you went into investing when you talked about um, like it being a hobby for you and then a passion and then convincing your wife that, you know, you can do this effectively. You started with uh, 300 capital 
which then later turned into West Ferry, um, more recently actually turned into West Ferry. Yeah. Um, did your investment process change in that time? Like from the time of you starting 300 Capital to, to, to now or to West Ferry, like how can you describe that period and how you went about investing? Because the fund grew pretty quick. You had friends in there and then you kind of had to get the AFSL and go from there. Yeah, that's right. So uh, after the um, that that period of really intense investing, um, my wife was was sufficiently convinced that I uh, could do it on a full time basis, and I, I uh, decided to do that. And my original intention was only to to run my own money um, and, and to mm. to basically scale up that process of what I've been doing. And, and to the extent that I had a bit more capital or could get a bit more capital to try to be a little bit more patient. Um, when I did that, I had friends though who wanted me to um, manage the money for them. I, uh, I started a, a, a private company a structure, um, and uh, a number of friends gave me money to, uh, to to manage. And we started off with only about half a million dollars in in late 2016. Um, the company was called 300 Capital. The, the great benefit of that for me was that it allowed me to to be more patient. So I was still at that stage um, engaging in my model of, of fairly high frequency trading, but again, nothing to do with uh, technicals. My, my modus operandi was to, to have a really good understanding of several hundred companies that I'd built up over many years simply from a bulldozer approach of, of reading day in, day out, uh, ASX announcements, um, obviously only scanning the, the titles, but then opening and, and reading the full announcements of those companies that seemed interesting. And then, as uh, many of your listeners will know, that um, in the course of a trading day or pre-open, companies will put in an announcement uh, that relates to a significant change. If it happens during the trading day, they were the most uh, beneficial to me because they were situations where the the ASX halts trading the company only for about 10 minutes or so uh, mm. and then it resumes now if you know BHP or Commonwealth Bank puts out an announcement during the day that's uh, market sensitive uh, there's thousands of eyes on that announcement and in that 10 minutes thousands of extremely intelligent people will take that information into account and, uh, and come up with a pretty good assessment of what it means and how the price should adjust accordingly. Now, with um, companies that have a market cap of sub 200 million, say, uh, there's just not the same number of eyes. And sometimes there's no eyes on those uh, announcements during the day. And so every now and then, I would find that I was able to either much more quickly or through luck be the only person who seems to have seen the announcement uh, react to those uh, much quicker than others and take advantage of um, you know, either buying or selling accordingly. So then, so this went on for a few years, right? So how now that you've got like the AFSL and it's a wholesale AFSL, you can bring investors into the fund. How has your investment process changed? Like, have would you just would you say that your investment philosophy has changed? Like the way you think about investing has changed along the way too, as well as the process. Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, some through necessity as I, as I grew the the ability that those opportunities I spoke of um, you can only allocate so much capital to those and it's often a case of getting it in and getting out fairly quickly and so as I've grown so we've gone from that half a million in late 2016 through to uh, to currently we have uh, under our new um, AFSL license entity West Ferry uh, we've got a bit over 18 million uh, in funds under management now. 
And so there's just not the same advantage to be made or it doesn't uh, have the same effect, I suppose, on the, the overall uh, returns of the, the fund given its size. But one of the main reasons I decided to take on money in any event uh, from, from outside was to allow me to have more patient capital. So in those early days, for instance, I was identifying really good companies like Jumbo Interactive. Um, you know, I was investing in it at 40 cents and, uh, you know, selling out at $1.50 thinking I'd uh, done really well. And it's obviously a company that's went to, to the high teens uh, some time after. Uh, companies like Appen, I was investing in at 60 cents and, and selling at a dollar something. Again, uh, taking quick profits because I, I needed to move on to the next good idea. And, you know, I wasn't convinced that uh, at that stage that there was an, an immediate upside, even though I knew that there was probably good medium-term prospects. So having uh, the, the further amount of capital allowed me to take more patient positions. And, and over time, over the subsequent years, um, I've essentially transitioned more and more to to the latter, uh, being uh, more positions where I am holding for much longer periods. And so that is a different style. I mean, I, I still can't resist the, uh, you know, a, a, a trade here and there uh, where mm. there's a, a clear uh, piece of information that I think I can assess better than others. But, yeah, certainly these days, the majority of my profits in the last couple of years, the vast majority have come from, uh, our largest holdings, which have been holdings in companies that I uh, want to hold for for many years, because I think they're they're really good companies. One of the questions that I got coming into this to ask you was basically how do you find new ideas? Because you, when you look across your portfolio, you seem to have ideas from you know different industries, different types of businesses all together. You told me that you t- they they tend to be founder or like strongly aligned kind of like owner operator. Um, style businesses and they're typically you know micro caps or small caps um, but how do you find those ideas as kind of an individual investor looking at these things um, the, the main way is through that bulldozer approach I told you about before just literally scanning the ASX announcements platform each and every day um, which obviously helps when you can do it full time uh, and, and when there's a market sensitive announcement from a company I don't really know or can't remember hearing about before I'll read that and then that will take me down to a path sometimes of, of uh, researching that particular company and so I build up a knowledge over many years by doing that one of the best mm. ways to find new companies I find is particularly around the the 4c season as it were so four times a year the uh, companies that haven't uh, satisfied the ASX that they are sustainably profitable have to put out a, a quarterly cash flow report. And that's the best way I find is to, to find a company that is going from that that early stage uh, of being unprofitable to perhaps just getting to the point of profitability. And it's the best way to to find that company before it reaches the the radar of of other funds or uh, bigger investors. So, and that's full of tricks because you know a, a quarterly cash flow is obviously different to profit. Um, cash flow can be affected by many things, including working capital changes that uh, mean that it doesn't necessarily necessarily reflect profits. You have to really reflect on whether uh, what you're seeing is a, an aberration, uh, just a good quarterly cash flow that has been affected by a one-off uh, factor or whether 
it's something that actually does indicate, hang on, this is a company that's been a bit of a dog or, you know, has really, I think, is one where the market hasn't been satisfied that it would ever reach profitability. Mm. They've had a great quarter. Hang on, is this is this a company that's actually making that step change or reaching an inflection point or something that is uh, then going to make it? And, th- and then there's, that becomes an art form in itself because uh, even if it's not, you think, well, hang on, even if I realise that it's a, uh, a one-off or, or it's not quite what it seems, I know the market's going to love this uh, in any event. And, and so is there a trading opportunity there? But that's that's one of the big areas. Um, otherwise, it's, you know, I, I have used uh, stock screeners, uh, particularly as a hobby. I, I like to, to look for sort of overseas stocks, even though I don't invest in them at the moment outside of New Zealand. And so that's a good way to, to do that. I just find that they're so unreliable, even the really good quality ones when you're talking about uh, small and medium-sized stocks uh, because they really don't factor in the, the one-offs or the, the underlying uh, profits in small and micro-cap companies. And so they, it's very hard to get reliable feed, feeds from them. There's one company, I think it was, is it Pacific Turbines? Brisbane is that the yes company? yeah yes uh, I thought this is an interesting example because I guess one of the things that you would have had to have done when you're investigating people is you'd have to be inc- incredibly thorough right you'd have to understand every detail but we tend to see that accountants often turn to investing because they're numbers focused and they understand accounts right so they go over them and they kind of really get in the weeds and that sort of stuff but you had that from a qualitative aspect as well insofar as judging kind of the bigger picture like how does this thing come together maybe that that serves as a good example uh, pacific turbines brisbane as a it's a good example of illustrating how you approach things and the, the level of detail you go to yeah it's so it's our biggest holding pacific turbine brisbane it's uh, uh a bit better known now but we've I've, I've you know used to trade in it back in 2013 2014 when it was a much smaller company uh so i've been aware of it for a long time uh, but it's been our largest holding now for, for a couple of years. So uh, it's got the code PTB. It's got a current market cap of around 130 million, but I've sort of been involved in it when it had a market cap of around 30 million. So if you go right back with PTB, it was actually listed on the NSX many years ago. And then around the time of the GFC in 2008, uh, there was a, a bundling together of a bunch of aviation businesses. Uh, a small regional airline, a big leasing business, and a an MRO, which is a maintenance uh, repair and uh, overhaul facility here in Brisbane. And they were bundled up together. They got a big loan from, from NAB, I think, at the time, which was to finance uh, all these different aircrafts that they would then le- lease out. They listed on the ASX, and literally within a month or so, the GFC the, the worst part of the GFC hit. Uh, airline leasing became the, the least cool thing in the world. NAB yeah. pulled, pulled funding on them. And and literally, as, as the story is told, NAB just rang up and, and just said that, you know, the facility is no longer available, uh, which, which caused, uh, uh, you know, and that's not how many go to NAB. That's what all the banks were doing at that stage. Uh, mm-hmm. There was genuine panic. And it meant for, uh, p- for PTB that they had to, uh, enter into a fire sale of, of uh, certain aircraft that they, they'd uh, purchased. They ended up with huge losses as a result. Uh, they sold off a, a lot of stuff. They sold off the, uh, the small regional airline. 
They sold off a lot of aircraft and they were left with a shell of what they'd originally listed with and a very large debt. And so the, the journey over the next few years is to try to uh, then run the, the MRO, the, the, the workshop that uh, dealt with uh, overhauling and repairing engines, which was a really good business, profitable business, but um, you know, quite small compared to the debts the company had. And that's what happened for the next three or four or five years. Uh, it was just a case of running the business that they had and paying down debt. Uh, there was no real prospects of them being able to do much else. It's only from around 2016 or so that uh, they finally got to a point where the balance sheet was was strong enough and, and it became quite an interesting company. So their core business is a workshop uh, at uh, in Brisbane here that uh, mm-hmm. overhauls what's called the PT6A engine. It's the uh, uh, it's a prop turbine engine, which is the most widely used aircraft engine in the world. It's been around since the 60s. Uh, made by Pratt and Whitney, um, and and it's mainly on aircraft that are uh, uh, big enough to hold, say, twenty people. If it was a passenger aircraft, but think of uh, planes like the, the Flying Doctors planes, uh, or slightly bigger planes than that. A lot of uh, crop dusters, for instance, will use that engine. Uh, a lot of small freight planes. You know, there's a whole fleet of uh, of uh, small planes, the Cessna Caravan in the US that. Uh, uh, freight companies use um, and seaplanes as well, so they're very big use in seaplanes. Um, and so that uh, that business continued to do quite well. It's you know had had issues in that it's uh, if you look at it from a from an outside perspective, it's got quite low return on capital because uh, it's a company that needs to hold a very large amount of uh, inventory. You need to have essentially a, an inventory that covers all the parts of these engines so that you can, can act quickly on them. And so that that wasn't a particularly exciting part of the business. But what it did have is a, a management and uh, a board who are heavily invested themselves, who had been successful in the past by building up a helicopter repair engine in New Zealand and then selling it off to the Chinese. And we're looking to do similar things again. So I was already invested in, in it um, in Early 2020, February, January, February, they raised capital at 69 cents a share in order to buy a US business called Prime Turbine. Um, it was an incredibly sought-after raising that Morgan's did here in Brisbane. It was, uh, I remember at that stage being very keen on it, and, and I think I was scaled back to only 10% of what I asked for. Uh, I tried to, to sub-underwrite it and, and got barely allocated anything. And so it was raising at sixty nine cents. The, the stock traded in the you know well into the nineties in the uh, the period around the raising, and and the whole idea was that they were going to buy this US operation, which was another MRO, and they were going to roll out their very successful way of operating their Brisbane MRO, which is far more efficient than a lot of their competitors. As I say, in, in February of twenty twenty, you couldn't get this stuff at sixty nine cents. In uh, in late March, April, uh, of course, COVID had hit. So only six weeks later, aviation businesses were incredibly unpopular. Mm. And PTB was thrown in the bin with all the other aviation businesses. And uh, those 69 cent stocks or shares that you just couldn't get your hands on were trading in the low 30s um, by late March, April. And the, you know, just being relentlessly sold. This has probably been my 
best success for the last couple of years is that I was aware probably more than, than others at that stage of exactly the type of planes that this company dealt with. So they had no exposure to wide body planes, no exposure to you know the type of planes that were universally grounded at that time. Uh, the vast majority of the planes that they serviced were still flying. And to the horror of my wife, I would sit here, possibly because I was losing so much money in all of my other companies, but I would sit here looking at the, the flight tracking uh, websites and track the the, the movements of the planes that these type of engines were attached to uh, in order to to satisfy myself that I was right, that, that in fact crop dusters and cargo planes and flying doctor's planes and uh, and seaplanes that had to still carry, you know, crucial equipment and whatnot between islands in the Pacific were all still flying uh, and that, yes, they were going to take a hit because, you know, one of their biggest clients uh, was a a tourism-based operator in the Maldives, and obviously they were going to be hit badly, but the vast majority of their clients were not going to be hit that badly. Uh, everything out of the company was saying, well, you know, we'll take a hit in some areas, but we're generally going okay. And so uh, that's really how it became our largest holding, that I um, kept uh, buying very hard into that uh, that period in, the, in sort of April to to June in 2020 when it was um, being thrown out by, by other funds. And so... In terms of your question about how much detail I would go into, part of it was that uh, that um, study of the type of planes and, and and tracking actual down to individual flights. Um, I also knew that their balance sheet was far stronger than than many people realised. So I'd, uh, you know, they, they were carrying a fair bit of of debt, which on the face of it may have looked concerning, but when you looked at it, it was offset by incredibly strong uh, assets. A lot of the debt was firstly non-recourse, so it was um, only recourse to particular assets that uh, were, you know, whether they be planes or engines, that uh, ultimately were not going to affect or, or cause detriment to the survivability of the company. Secondly, um, the company had two properties, one in Sydney and one in Brisbane here that they owned and were on the books at cost. And so I visited the property in Sydney at Warrawood um, and I knew the one here in Brisbane at Pinkin Bar, uh, you know, essentially did my own valuations based on having done lots of years of being involved in in the uh, in REITs. Uh, and it was clear that they were worth, you know, way, way more than was what they were on the books for. And the other thing is the the actual inventory for a company like that is, it's, you know, we're not talking about the, the inventory of a, a retailer, for instance, uh, these are plane parts that have essentially been around since the 60s and will be around and useful for another 50 years. They can be easily repaired and, and sold on uh, and they hold their value extremely well. And, and as has proven since, they, again, are very conservatively valued so that you know often when they are sold on, they are sold on at a higher price. So, you know, there's other little things. There was a you know two million bucks or one point five million dollars of, of assets. There was a, a loan to the the CEO for his shares. You know, which was obviously a, a very sort of secure uh, asset, and that also gave me some confidence, I suppose, that the company was in far better uh, shape than it than uh, than, than many people realised. So that that's where we've gone with that that company. Yeah, this it's pretty obvious to our listeners how much you go in, in, in depth in the with these companies. And also I think if you look at your portfolio, they're kind of the breadth of companies in terms of how different they are, illustrates kind of your go anywhere approach, but also your conviction 
in your ideas, which is has to be born out of research, right? So, sorry, there's another company in there that I know you've spoken about once before, um, but I just thought it was interesting because a lot of our listeners may be old enough to remember the the kind of debacle with Slater and Gordon and Shine Lawyers, not to a lesser extent, but mainly Slater and Gordon, which is basically the business became a multinational business very quickly and ended up with this huge work in progress or WIP line item in their accounts, which was basically a non-cash item that represented work outstanding by the, the, the lawyers. And that ultimately was a massive thing that brought them undone. And I guess empire building was another thing. And so when people see legal businesses, they tend to kind of cringe a bit about the idea of investing in such a business. And I think there's a, there's a kind of line of thought that suggests that when people invest in you know, professional type services businesses, a lot of the, the surplus or value that's accrued goes to the employees rather than to the business itself. But I know that you have Australian Family Lawyers or AFL as the ticket code in your top holdings, or at least it has been consistently over the, over the recent months. Um, so I'm just hoping maybe you can break down that business for us and why that would be different to say a Slater and Gordon. Sure. Um, and I have reason to be more sceptical than most, I suppose, because if mm. I look back on all of my investments and I keep pretty meticulous records, uh, I think Slater and Gordon is probably my worst ever result. Um, that was a, I mean, and, that, and that's an example of a company that's probably reflects my growth as an investor. So that was one where, uh, you know, the Slater and Gordon's Australian business is fine. It's, it's, a, it's a fine business. It's not great, it's, it's a, but it's good. It's a good business. I think management will pay far too much, but it's, 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 a, it's an okay business. What they did is, uh, as you've touched on, bought a, a UK company, paid an, an enormous amount of money for it. From memory, it was you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars. And I wasn't particularly interested in, in, in that. Uh, at that stage, it seemed to me they were paying a fair bit of money for it and uh, I wasn't particularly interested. But um, afterwards, there was, there was hints that that company was having some problems. Uh, the price fell quite sharply of Slater and Gordon and that's what piqued my interest. And I started to, um, to invest on it as a, you know, a value play, I suppose. Uh, it was what was in my mind that uh, there'd been a market overreaction to these rumours uh, of the U- UK company. And so I was satisfied by the the adamant position of Slater and Gordon has put out in a number of announcements that they had taken a team of lawyers to the UK, had sat down and and gone through every single file of this UK company uh, that they were purchasing and it satisfied themselves that it was um, it was fine, uh, and that there was no fraud, and that these rumours were uh, misconstrued. And so I um, continued to, to buy it as the price fell uh, on the on the back of that assurance. Yeah, as we we now know that uh, that wasn't the case. I have no idea what the lawyers over there were doing. You know, a bunch of lawyers on a trip to the UK might have been getting up to all sorts of stuff. Uh, there's lots of fun to be had. But uh, certainly, if they had gone through every file, they they clearly missed a lot because the company essentially was, if not a fraud, then a complete dud. Just about all of the the asset was written off uh, not that long after, and it's it's still the, the subject of a of several legal claims, both against the you know company itself and against their lawyers and against their uh, accountants. So. I take some solace from the fact that uh, 
you know, there's at least the, and some of those are settled. So the actual acts, you know, the negligence has been established or uh, essentially established in those cases. So, yes, that's that's one example of why there's been a horror show in relation to legal services companies. The other one is, with Slaters to an extent, but more so with Shine Lawyers. It was a, I mean, Shine Lawyers was actually a very successful listing. I uh, was part of the IPO on that. It's you know it's got a strong brand, particularly here in Queensland, and it did very well in its early days. But um, I actually have an email floating around somewhere from when it listed saying that, uh, you know, I, I got in and got out quite early on that stock because I, I actually have an email saying to someone that this is going to be, you know, it's going to blow up one day because... As a, as a lawyer, I was very familiar with the concept of WIP, work in progress, where as a junior lawyer, you are essentially beaten over the head by uh, senior lawyers to ensure that you record all your time, no matter how useful you might think it is as a, a junior lawyer, and that it's ultimately up to the senior lawyer or the partner to to write that off at the time of billing if they think uh, it needs to be written off. And the reality was that uh, come time to bill the client, a lot of the stuff on the the bill that had actually been recorded is just it's just rubbish, you know, it's stuff that you couldn't possibly honestly charge a, a client. That was my personal experience anyway. And so I had great concerns that this massive build-up of whip on the the books of uh, with Shine would, would actually be something that is, you know, uh, certainly 100% were able to be collected one day. And that seemed to be the, the view of the market. The market and all the analyst reports were assuming that, that WIP was uh, was real money, that it was something that could be uh, uh, all collected at some point. Now, Shine, the price crashed at one point when it became clear that uh, they were having to write down massive amounts of that WIP, uh, and that completely changed people's views of it. And and that's, that's given both of the it's given the whole industry a bad reputation uh, and completely and probably understandably put off many investors. My position is that Shine and, and Slater's now are, are both, you know, perfectly adequate businesses. I'm not invested in either and I, I don't think I ever would be uh, because I think they're both far too expensive. I don't think they're great businesses, but they're they're fine if you value them on the cash that they're, they're bringing in. Again, I think in Shine's case, people are starting to value it on, uh, the accounting profit rather than the, the cash profit, uh, which is why I think it's far too expensive. If you value it as a, as a on its cash, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, now, Australian family law, A, holds many advantages over those companies and B, is very different in terms of how it um, uh, accounts for its profits. So, I mean, one of the, the first things to differentiate uh, Australian family law from those companies is that uh, there really isn't a build-up of WIP. So with a family law case, generally clients come in the door, they, they, they usually pay up front for a, an initial consultation. And then if they're taken on as a client, they're, uh, they're usually sent a, a bill every two to f- four weeks. You know, often the money is actually having to be put up front uh, in, a, in the lawyer's trust account. The bills are sent and immediately deducted. So there's a very close connection between cash flow and actual uh, revenue. There's not this this build-up, and so you don't have that potential future a disaster like you have uh, in the case of uh, especially Shine. The other advantage that they have is that family law is a genuinely national jurisdiction. So 
personal injury law is different in every state. It's um, it's not necessarily uh, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a, a national type of company or a, a large listed company. Whereas family law, you can have a lawyer in any state who will understand the the jurisdiction and the law as it applies in any other state or territory. Uh, and therefore, there's much more prospect for the the sharing of resources, the sharing of, of staff, especially in this age of being able to work remotely, uh, and the sharing of things like uh, precedent and uh, the use of articles and research that can be used for promotion of and, and social media exposure uh, and marketing in each of the other jurisdictions. And I think that's something that they're starting to, to, to make use of. Um, now, it's, you know, it's still, take all that aside, it still has this, uh, you know, AFL still has a large group of sceptics and that's fine simply because it is a, you know, as they would say, a, a personal or professional services roll-up. Um, the company itself will say, well, we're not a roll-up. We're a, you know, we are buying large companies in Sydney and or larger practices in Sydney and Melbourne because that's the, the speediest way to actually get to scale. But the, the majority of their growth has come from bringing on partners or senior lawyers from, uh, I suppose you could say, poaching those lawyers from other uh, significant practices and giving them more prospects than they have at those practices in terms of you know bonuses, profit share, and being able to build up their own uh, practice. And so I think it's going to be a very long time before it gets over the the, the sceptics who, uh, you know, have been burnt by these sort of uh, roll-ups before. But, again, I'm a, a person that focuses on who are the people involved. And, and in this case, the this managing director, Grant Dearlove, is someone who I know to be, a, a, a very good lawyer in the past, but also, you know, a particularly good manager and motivator of people. And that's what... This, this needs, this company needs at this stage of its development. He's someone that can go to other senior lawyers. You know, lawyers can be quite eccentric at the best of times, uh, but, but can uh, corral them into a, a cohesive unit in my view. And so it's, it's essentially, you know, backing him, backing the team that he's put together. And, and my longer term view is that if his sort of vision can be created where they get a genuinely national uh, family law firm at scale, you're going to have a uh, a company that is quite uh, attractive to larger funds because once it does get to a scale and get some consistency in earnings, um, it, it's it's really going to be the only player in that space. Uh, everything else in family law is a cottage industry, and it's a it's a great industry to be in. It's an incredibly defensive industry that I, in my view, will ultimately attract much bigger investors if it is executed right. I've got to admit, like humility is important in this game. I I got caught up in Slater and Gordon and I held shine for a while. In fact, I made money from both of them, but I wasn't exactly proud of how those two (laughs) ended. Um, But this is a really interesting business. I was just looking at it now as you were speaking through it. Um, One of the things that you brought up there was basically management, right? And how important that is to be motivated and and especially when you're attracting high-performing people like lawyers, right? Mm. Um, There's... While we're on the topic of people, I asked you the other day about red flags and amber flags and green flags and some of the things that you use and some of the heuristics that you've developed over time around identifying companies. Um, I'm hoping, because I think you've got a pretty interesting idea around 
a red flag and as it relates to management. But I'm hoping you can share with us any kind of red flags that you've come across whilst kind of hunting through this micro cap slash small cap part of the market. I have. I mean, I sort of touched on it before in terms of the uh, type of responses you might get uh, from management in terms of how they answer questions. I mean, one of the, the big things is, you know, those companies that uh, seem to try to uh, tie themselves in with the latest trend, whether it be, uh, you know, the one to look at at the moment is anyone that talks about having a product that uh, ties into the metaverse somehow, I think is an immediate red flag to me. Anyone that, you know, talked about having something that was uh, AI a few months or a year or two ago. I mean, that's not to say that some of these aren't entirely legitimate, but uh, but there's a, a type of company that will suddenly find a way that its its product ties into the the zeitgeist, whether it be yeah AI, the metaverse. There's been heaps of them, you know, baby milk powder, cobalt, cannabis, um, you know, whatever the latest trend is. That's um, you know something to be concerned about, and mostly those are companies that are not yet profitable, um, and so they're probably ones that are easy to avoid in any event for, for, for me in terms of what I'm. I'm following, but yeah, that, that's something that that jumps out. I mean, the the other thing for me is, is, I suppose, the opposite of a red flag. And you touched on is looking for for management and executives who are, you know, heavily invested in the company themselves. I'm really looking for for management who, you know, essentially running like a family business or a a, 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 a small business where they know that they have a genuine ownership in it. And so, I suppose the opposite is a red flag where you have a CEO or management who are insistent that they have a great idea or a great product or a great company but uh, aren't investing in it themselves or you and this is mostly a problem for larger companies where you have a a sort of a, a box ticking uh, board who aren't invested and are, uh, are really you know in, in my view sometimes there for the prestige of being able to, to say they're on a board I mean you know, being on a board is can be a very difficult and and uh, risky job uh, as a company gets a lot bigger and for some of them that uh, the focus is so much on ensuring that there's uh, that they're focused on risk avoidance rather than actual entrepreneurial aspects so um, you know they're they're sort of red flags that I also look for I think you I don't know if you want to bring it up but I think you had an interesting idea about um, like this comes back to that tying into that tracking people through time thing. Um, a company on the ASX, I'm not sure if you wanted to go there, but it's up. Yeah, yeah, I'll, sure. I'll throw it up to you, which is um, which is Story Eye. Yeah, and that's sorry, that's that's right. That's another company uh, which has been interesting for me. Uh, so it's, a, it's called Story Eyes. The code's SRY. It's now down <laughs> suspended. So it's one that uh, caught my eye again from from just trawling announcements. And and on its face, it has a great story to tell, right? It's got a, it's a company that operated and still does operate Apple reseller shops in Indonesia. It's one of only two or three of the shops in Indonesia that are able to uh, legitimately resell Apple products. Apple itself doesn't have any Apple stores in Indonesia, uh, predominantly because the government there requires a certain level of local ownership. Uh, of any business that operates in Indonesia and Apple have basically just said, well, we're not interested in that. 
And so the only people selling genuine Apple products were, you know, two or three companies. And Story I was uh, a company that was going to snap up, I think it was the plan, uh, snap up one of the, the more junior partners. And it did ultimately get to a point where it was the second biggest of the resellers. And my whole theory was, you know, it, it, it's selling Apple products is a difficult game because, the, you know, they're very powerful, the margin's low. Um, we saw in Australia with, I think, PhoneZone tried to, to do it and then the margins are so low that it's difficult. But I thought in Indonesia, you have the great advantage that, you know, an iPhone in Indonesia is sold at essentially the same price as an iPhone in Australia in, in terms of actual uh, conversions so of the same strain dollar value. Uh, so, yes, there's, a say, a very small margin, gross margin, uh, and in Australia, that gross margin is almost impossible to sustain when you have to pay rent and staff. But the rent and staff in Indonesia are, are a fraction of what they are in Australia. And so the, my view was that, well, you're earning exactly the same gross margin in Australian dollar terms. You really should be able to, to eke out a pretty decent profit when you're only paying Indonesian uh, levels of uh, uh, rent and uh, utilities and particularly staff. You know, in hindsight, there's a massive amount of red flags. This this company, I mean, why is it listed in Australia? Well, they, they seem to explain that okay, uh, in that they wanted to to get some level of legitimacy. I mean, the other thing that gave me some confidence in them is the fact that, well, Apple are dealing with them, right? Apple are actually allowing them to sell their products. Apple are actually visiting the stores, according to the company, and, and uh, ensuring that the stores are at a certain level. And so I, I ended up having a reasonable sort of investment in this company. Over time, I actually made a profit out of them, uh, looking back at my records. But you know, I had I had at one point an exposure that was probably far more than I would normally have or should have had. And that's the type of thing that that you know lets you lie awake at night sometimes. And so it's one where I, I ended up doing a lot more delving. And over time, there's an Indonesian. So the, the management was based in Jakarta, uh, an Australian board. Uh, and over time, my research as some of the people involved raised a few concerns. Um, and I was increasingly asked to deal with a, a fellow who was not actually noted on the, the board or management, um, and he was Singapore-based. And that was fine. He was very knowledgeable. He was a large investor in the company himself. He gave me all sorts of reasons as to why he wasn't actually on the board. My own research eventually, and it was difficult to find, but eventually I found that this, this guy in Singapore who I was dealing with had uh, had been in Australia for a long time and in that time had twice been uh, convicted criminally in relation to uh, various things, one in very, essentially involving the withholding of, of wages from from uh, students who were consistently lied to by him. So that uh, raised some major red flags. I kept doing significant research into, uh, you know, social media, into uh, all sorts of ways of trying to find out how these stores were going and what they were looking like. And eventually I said, look, I've got a lot of money exposed here. I'm actually going to just fly to Indonesia and go and see these uh, mm. stores myself so I I um you know my wife wasn't overly thrilled by that but I, I flew to uh, to uh, the island of Java where most of the stores were based uh, and and went to four or five of the major cities in Java and obviously finished in Jakarta 
and went and visited each of these stores and and the and then also turned up at uh, the head office in Jakarta and ended up um, having a meeting with uh, the, the CEO and, uh, and and checking that out too. Look, this company is ultimately, as I say, ended up in uh, suspension. It seemingly was a great idea. It was making reasonably good revenue but could just never make a, a, a profit. My own research when I got there on the ground actually showed that these stores were were magnificently presented as you'd expect if Apple were were, were checking on them. Uh, the, the head office appeared to be uh, all legit. There were certainly uh, a lot of people in there working and appearing to be busy. I mean, I've, I've, there's, there's many reasons um, I've, I've formulated as to how and why it didn't actually work, but I suppose that I raised that as an example of the the extent to which I was prepared to sort of to research it. It probably didn't actually get me a, an answer in the end, but uh, the number of red flags that I picked up meant that I did ultimately exit that and uh, managed to get out with, a, as I say, a small profit on a company that subsequently, you know, I think probably won't trade again. Why did it get suspended? Uh, they didn't. Um, I was out of it by then and I... It was too painful for me to read too much of it, but but my understanding is that they uh, they weren't able to file their annual report for a long time. I mean, my, I had concerns about their reports. The, the The accounts were appallingly presented, right? So, I mean, one example is that they, in one half, presented this cash flow of uh, they had an operational cash flow suddenly a massively larger operational cash flow than they'd ever had before, and when you dug into it. It just made no sense whatsoever. And the best answer I actually ended up with from the company, and it seemed to be the case, is they'd actually borrowed uh, $6 million Australian dollars from a, a bank, a Singapore-based bank, and had put it through, put through these borrowings uh, through as, as operational cash flow as opposed to, to debt. Um, and it's not something that is ever questioned. There was, you know, this is a company that had a market cap of around six or seven million dollars at one stage. There was hardly anyone of note looking at it. it you know, it was just a, a mess. Um, and it's eventually, it seems, that the ASX has caught up with that aspect of it, questioned the accounts. And it seems that the company haven't. I mean, I know that they've now filed their annual report, but uh, yeah, there's certainly no sign that they're going to resume trading at any any time so my, my best answer to that is that it seems to be some concerns the asx has around the the um, accuracy of the accounts mm. i think you've illustrated to us kind of like the, the wild west that can be market cap investing even on a yeah. exchange right you know. exactly and, and and yes so that that's the the difficult part i mean and the the frustrating part with story i was you know in the the period after i had realized that it this is a company with some major issues Occasionally, they would put out an announcement that was seemingly quite exciting and, you know, it would attract. And I think I'm pretty sure at one stage it became the subject of uh, one of those now notorious Facebook or uh, social media, you know, pump groups. Uh, and, the, and the price would, you know, I think at one stage went up 200% in, in a couple of days after I was already out. And so that, that's quite frustrating that uh, I missed the, the excitement there. But... Yeah, I mean, it's now gone back to, to zero and I don't think uh, it will trade again. Um, there is one question that I do like to ask all guests on the show before before you, you leave, which is just that if you could go back and tell a younger Peter one thing about investing, what would it be? 
Uh, you've had quite a diverse background and it's like things are moving really fast for you with West Ferry now. Yeah. Um, so what would you tell yourself? Um, I, I thought about this. My, my motto would be uh, and what I tell myself is that anyone can play. And by that, I mean, I think I spent many years looking from the outside. You know, I still remember being a fairly highly functioning person in my late 20s who just had no idea about finance or, or you know, even things like superannuation or, or whatnot. And in my mind, I think that uh, I always thought, well, the equity markets or being a fund manager, that's for for other people that there's there's obviously a certain path you have to follow to, to get there. You need to go and work for, a, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know, but I, I expect that you would need to work for uh, certain types of um, organisations and then build your way up so that you can uh, eventually get to that point. I mean, just while I'm discussing that, I remember just before I finished university, I think I was applying for, for all sorts of jobs. I remember applying for a job at Macquarie and, it was either a cadetship or a internship or something like that, but it involved like three stages of interviews, and I got through the first two fine. Uh, but I remember having an interview then with uh, you know, the last interview was with a reasonably senior person uh, there, and I remember them asking me what I wanted to do, and I just had no idea. I had no idea of what. You know, I've done my basic research that you would do on the internet about you know what happens at Macquarie, but uh, I couldn't have been more green. I had no understanding of what practically happened on a day-to-day basis at Macquarie. So uh, when he started digging down into actually what I wanted to do on a practical basis, I just had no idea. And you know, he, he ended up answering the question for me. I think saying, "I suppose you want to, you know, ultimately uh, build up to a position where you maybe." running your own portfolio at some stage and i said uh sure yeah um and i didn't didn't get the job understandably i think the other problem was they wanted to know what financial press i read and i think the best i could tell them was the business section of the career mail which was basically as good as reading a comic but anyway i suppose that my my, my thing about anyone can play is that i've ultimately found a a passage because when i did get into finance and into the share market I, i found that i had such a passion for it that uh, I just ultimately found a way through the fact that I had no particular background uh, in, you know, working for an investment bank or working for, you know, even an accountant or for any sort of financial organisation, um, and have found a way applying other skills um, to it. I mean, I mean, I'm fortunate in the way that I probably found it later in life because I had then friends that, you know, had also done reasonably well for themselves and had money that they could give me to manage. I mean, that's you know something that. I suppose not everyone has, but you know, there's there's a million passages to get to a point where you, you know, can play a significant role in uh, in this industry. So don't be too concerned. Don't think you're on the, the right path. Things can change very quickly down the track, and and you don't really know uh, what that particular path's going to be. Mm. I think that's that's wonderful advice. I think a lot of people are put off when they listen to podcasts like this and. They see people in suits in the city or on TV. Yeah. They think it's such an overwhelming thing. And it's, it's really not. If you commit yourself to learning and you kind of have that bulldozer analogy, which is really neat, um, I think that's really important too, is just kind of reading widely and, and just giving it a crack. I think great advice, mate. So Yeah. And the other thing is I think the people that often are the most intimidating or look like they're most at place in the industry, are, as you really dig down to it over time, mm. are, are often are often making it up as they go along to an extent as well. And so, yeah, don't, don't be intimidated at all.
Mm, wonderful advice, mate. I'll put links in the show notes to West Ferry, uh, which is the fund. People can play along um, on Twitter. They can follow you. Uh, they can get your insights on the website too. So, mate, I know this is your first long-form interview, so I really appreciate you taking the time out and joining me on the show. No problem. Thank you very much, Owen.